The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, if you will join me in Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. And this afternoon, we will finish looking at Jesus' letters to the churches in Revelation, looking at verses 14 through 22. I recently read a study about the eating habits of the average American. You might imagine rather depressing study to read. It showed that the regular diet of processed foods is distorting the ability to recognize and enjoy the taste of real food. It pointed out how difficult it is for consumers to avoid these things because It's cheaper per calorie, it's more readily accessible, but these processed foods have ingredients that don't even provide nourishment or even flavor, but they prolong shelf life and create a physical response to the body that actually makes us to crave them all the more. Foods that are engineered uh, have a negative impact on our ability to discern the difference between good food and bad food, and in time it makes good food to actually taste, uh, to be distasteful to us. And this is changing how our taste buds respond. Usually when you eat something like boring salad, you get a little bit of a taste on the front of your tongue and as it goes to the back of your mouth, then you start to get the full flavor before you swallow it. But engineered food, processed foods, is quite the opposite. As soon as you put it in your mouth, you get an instant jolt of flavor and it quickly disappears and so then you want more. And so once you pop, you can't stop. So what's happening is that these things are becoming more and more part of the average diet. And so we're not, we're not only getting bigger and more unhealthy, we're losing our ability to taste. And so when we do taste real food, it's not something we enjoy. And over time, our tongues adapt to the way that our tongue senses flavors, and it changes to more unnatural and more readily available food sources. Now, I think this is an appropriate illustration for this final letter we're looking at to the churches in Revelation. What we've seen is that the Lord Jesus has the most sensitive spiritual taste buds with which to determine whether or not what the church is doing is healthy. He can taste the real spiritual food and he loves it, but he will spit out everything that's engineered, everything that's processed. And what we will see with the church in Laodicea is that Jesus gets to this church and he doesn't like anything of what he's tasting. It's so bad, it is so unappetizing, it is so repulsive that he says he's ready to spit it out entirely. It's as if the people of Laodicea had nothing but a diet of highly processed, highly engineered spiritual food, and they have completely lost their spiritual taste buds. So when they taste something real, something authentic, something true, they can't eat it. They don't like it. They won't consume it. Their spiritual taste buds were hijacked by the processed flavors of the world around them. And so as a result, the church of Laodicea, unlike all the other six, does not get a single commendation from the Lord, but only a rebuke. 
So let's read our text and see what the Lord has to say, beginning in verse 14, Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, the city of Laodicea was in a region called the Lycus Valley. And it was a a major Roman road that ran right through the city. It was a very wealthy city, but despite all of its wealth, it was also very well known for its water supply, for the city uh, had a very terrible place to gather water. Laodicea sat right where water was mixed from both hot springs and from cold springs, and they converged upstream in the city, and there was a six-mile-long aqueduct of lukewarm water. And what we'll see as we go along, the cultural and geographical context of Laodicea is what Jesus uses to draw his rebuke to this church. He opens this letter by describing himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Now, really, those are not so much three different distinct descriptions, but generally they overlap in their meaning to to really highlight the reality of Jesus' faithfulness in testifying to his Father during his earthly ministry and continuing as such a witness everlastingly. Jesus does this because he wants them to stop compromising and start emulating him so that they will also be faithful and true witnesses. If they do not heed his warning to repent, then they will face him as a faithful and true judge who will, in the words of the scriptures, vomit them out. However, if they do become faithful witnesses, they will also show themselves to be a part of the new creation which has been inaugurated in Jesus, just as his faithful testimony led to him being the firstborn from the dead launching the new creation. So their, their loyal testimony will demonstrate that they are part of the new creation by virtue of their identification with him as their prophet, their priest, and their king. And so the theme of this letter overall 
is that the church needs to be renewed as new creations in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, testifying to their relationship with Christ in an uncompromising manner. And Jesus can raise them from their spiritual sleepiness. He can strengthen them in their faith so that they will truly repent. And he will confirm in them their enduring fellowship with him. And if that happens, they will receive an everlasting reward. But this church is in a very bad place. It needs Christ's resurrection power because they are in the worst condition. Is there hope for this church? Well, yes, of course. That's why Jesus is even bothering to have this letter sent to them in the first place. However, to switch metaphors here, the church is so sick that Jesus becomes a doctor to deal with their symptoms, the underlying disease, and then he provides the cure. So we see in verses 15 and 16 that spiritual sickness is evidenced by a lack of spiritual zeal. Jesus told the church, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. Lukewarmness, spiritually speaking, neither hot nor cold. This is what Jesus is talking about. What is spiritual lukewarmness? Well, we we need to get an idea of what it is uh, from that which uh, Jesus decides to say in verse 19 that he calls them to be zealous. That's the exhortation. That helps us understand what this lukewarmness is all about because it's the opposite of zeal. It's a lack of spiritual zeal. In other words, a lukewarm Christian is a Christian without a zeal for God. What does that look like? Well, don't think of this as being a hypocrite per se. That's not what Jesus seems to have in mind here. A lukewarm person believes everything that he should believe. He's doing the right things in life. He's, he's not cheating. He's not stealing. He's not hiding some kind of private sin that, that he condemns in public. No, his life really is what it appears to be. However, and I hope we'll all hear this because I think for the majority of us, if we're having some spiritual issue in our lives, it's probably going to be lukewarmness for most of us. And sometimes it's easy to think that it's a place that's okay to be. But remember, Jesus doesn't have anything good to say to them. So what does it look like? Well, the lukewarm Christian has a heart that is not first and foremost, above all else, set on Jesus Christ as the greatest and highest source of love and affection. It has been, it it was, maybe for a long time, but they got lax, they backed off, they got excited about other things, and without realizing it, it has has slowly changed. And And then they are eventually at a place where the zeal of God is lacking altogether. There's no intimacy, there's no passion, there's no joy, there's no wonder in their faith, and they no longer walking with him day by day. And, and so Jesus goes after this. Now look, this doesn't mean we spend every waking hour reading the Bible, or that we, we can't have hobbies, or we can't enjoy things that aren't explicitly spiritual in nature. But what is the overall trajectory of our lives? And do we have a mindset that in all that we do, we aren't pulling away from God's word, that we, that we are concerned to maintain our communion with him, that we are, are bringing him glory and, and delighting in the fact that we've been rescued from the wrath of God. 
So what does Jesus say? Well, the first negative thing he says is something that is quite often wrestled with. Commentators often differ on what, what this might mean. We all have different ideas about it. I'll share what I think is most accurate given the context. What does Jesus mean here? Notice he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, it makes sense for Jesus to say, I'd rather you be hot, because we would assume that when he's talking about zeal, he's talking about being hot. He's addressing the problem with that one, but he also says, I'd rather you were cold than you were lukewarm. What's going on there? Well, remember I mentioned the geography of Laodicea. The waters in one part, uh, Aeropolis, I believe it's pronounced, they were hot. They were considered to be therapeutic. They were considered medicinal to have healing properties to them. Now, the waters from Colossae were very cold and they were refreshing. They were good for drinking. And so the water in Laodicea was a, was a combination of the two. It was lukewarm, and if it, if it went in your mouth, the instant response was to spit it out. And so Jesus is making the comparison, and the Laodiceans were lukewarm in the sense that their Christianity provided neither healing for the spiritually sick nor refreshment for those who were spiritually weary. And so it seems to me this bit about him wanting them to be hot or cold is not him saying, I want you to have this, this great zeal for God or be cold and a non-believer. No, rather he's saying, I want you to either be, be zealous to provide the bread of life with zeal or to provide the refreshing water of life to nourish the soul. So it's not positive or negative. Both of these are very positive. Notice he doesn't say, I'm angry at you for being lukewarm. He continues with this imagery. He says, I will spit you out. You turn my stomach. You gag me. That's something very personal. It's visceral. And so there's a serious lack of spiritual zeal. And this is their spiritual sickness. But Jesus goes on and shows us in verse 17 that the underlying disease that causes lukewarmness is comfort and compromise with the world. We have to be able to understand the irony of what Jesus is saying here. So we need, again, more background information. We actually know a lot about Laodicea as a city, more than most of the ancient cities of the world, but three main things are pertinent to this text. First, Laodicea was a place where a lot of clothing was made. Black wool was their biggest trade. The weavers were able to make some very highly sought-after clothing. Second, it was a financial center. The city was loaded down with wealth. And so when they were devastated by an earthquake in AD 60, they didn't ask Rome for any help. That would have been unheard of. Everyone went to Rome to ask for help when they needed it. But they did it all by themselves. And they handled all their own business as a result. And thirdly, Laodicea was a center for medical advancement. They produced a lot of different medicines, especially eye ointments and salves. Now think about those three things. Clothing, money, 
and medicine for the eyes. And now we think about what Jesus says here and we get the irony. He says, you think you're well-clothed, you're rich, and you're healthy. You think you can see, but actually you're naked, you're poor, and you're blind. What does it mean in the Bible when it says you're spiritually naked? Nakedness is a metaphor for, for guilt and shame. It's a metaphor all throughout Scripture for our sinfulness. If you are naked, you have a record against you. You're liable to punishment. What is spiritual poverty? It's helplessness. You can't change your condition. You can't deal with your guilt. You can't make yourself to be the person that you want to be. You're utterly unable to do anything. And what is spiritual blindness? It means, apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't even know that you're guilty or insufficient. You don't have eyes to see. And so Jesus says, in spite of how well-clothed you are, in spite of how rich you are, in spite of how healthy you are spiritually before God, you are actually absolutely naked, absolutely poor, and absolutely blind. And Jesus is pointing out that there's a direct link to being wealthy, being brilliant, being accomplished, having high achievement, and spiritual lukewarmness in their situation. Why? Well, because when you're really brilliant and when you're really accomplished and when you're making a whole lot of money, when you're at the top of the world, when you're very accomplished in the world, you are very tempted to say, as a Christian, I know I am a sinner saved by grace. I know that. But existentially, what goes on in my life from day to day, the reality of that sometimes won't grip your heart. And, and so the result is that the knowledge that Jesus loves you it's just words. It doesn't move you to think about it. It doesn't stun you. You may say you believe you're a sinner, but you actually don't feel like it at all. And because you don't feel like you're a sinner, you don't actually feel the utter unbelievable reality of God's amazing grace. And so I think it's really easy for us living in the West to read something like Jesus saying, it's very difficult for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, like a camel threading the eye of a needle. And we read that and we think of our own circumstances and say, well, I'm not a billionaire. I'm not even a millionaire. Maybe I'm not even a thousandaire. <laughs> but despite that, brothers and sisters, we here living in the West, in America in 2023, are the richest people the world has ever known. And so this very much speaks to our situation and our reality. And it's very difficult, spiritually speaking, to overcome some of these things, like being smart. It's very difficult, spiritually speaking, to overcome being well-off, being accomplished, being brilliant. It's very difficult. We're living in Laodicea, in North America. And so let's be real about it. Let's admit that in so many ways we can have a tendency to be lukewarm like the Laodiceans because we are generally pretty comfortable like the Laodiceans. Now this isn't an indictment on every person. It's a general statement about our culture and what it's like to live where we live in the time that we live. There's a pride. There's a self-sufficiency and it tends to dull our spiritual senses. 
And that, Jesus is telling us, is the underlying disease that causes spiritual sickness, the lack of zeal. We are so comfortable with life that our tendency is to soak everything in uncritically. And then we get to a place where it is quite difficult to distinguish between us and the world. Our lives are easily marked by worldliness. That's a disease. That is the root cause that results in lukewarmness that Jesus wants to spit out. Now, Laodicea went beyond penetrating the city with the gospel and the church and was instead being penetrated by the city. They were saying about themselves what the city was saying about itself. We're rich and we need nothing. And so the world was squeezing the church into the mold of the city until the church really didn't look anything different than the city. Yes, they, they, they were still gathering weekly, but the world had their gatherings too. In reality, they were addicted to being accepted by the society around them. That's a highly intoxicating thing. It's not fun to have people hate you because of your firmly held beliefs or strong convictions. So the easiest thing to do is to just change the way we think and talk and then conform. That's where Laodicea is. And Jesus was the only one willing to tell them that the emperor had no clothes. But brothers and sisters, That's how we know he loved them. He doesn't just leave them to themselves. We see finally in verses 18 through 22 that the cure for spiritual sickness and its underlying disease is communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He gives four important remedies to the underlying disease that is causing this spiritual sickness of lukewarmness. The first medicine he prescribes is to grasp that, uh, to, to grasp salvation that it is all by grace. He's saying grasp my gracious salvation. Get from me a white robe, gold that does not fade, and spiritual sight that you might see. And and when he says, get from me, the phrase from me is very important. Remember, they were saying, we don't have need of anything. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 from me, you have to get your white robe. You can't go down to the market and pick it up. Only I can provide that. And what is that white robe? Well, later on in Revelation, we learn that it is symbolic of our righteous standing before the Father. We are dressed in white because of what Jesus did on the cross despite who we truly are. It's Jesus dying on the cross. It's forgiveness and pardon, and it is ours. And what's the gold? It is our status before God. What is gold refined by fire? It is, it's a status before God. Undoubtedly, we need to see that what we have in this world is a gift from God. But we need to be careful. We need to e- evaluate our hearts and our temptations because these things can destroy us. They can become our true loves and make us lukewarm. So we're no longer experiencing the love of Christ or giving our love to Him. There's a, there's a famous golfer who was hurt badly, he couldn't play. And when he was interviewed about what he does with his time, 
you would know who this is. Multi, multi, multi-millionaire all through his career, now a billionaire. He just couldn't play golf anymore. And he was interviewed and they said, what did you do with your time? And he said, well, I played up to 12 hours of video games every day. Think about that. More money than you could ever think to even spend in this life. The ability to do pretty much anything you want and you spend up to 12 hours a day playing video games as a grown man. Why? Because golf was his garment. Golf is what covered his nakedness in his mind. It was his gold. And Jesus is saying, if accomplishment in sports or accomplishment in your business or whatever it is, is your real gold, your real garment, you're this close to being naked. You're this close to being poor. Anything can change. The only garment that you can never lose, the only gold that you can never spend is what I give you because it's all by grace. It's all by grace. All of the other garments are works and you can lose them by works and you will lose them in the end. Friends, do you have what only Jesus gives? Are you in Christ? Where do you find your identity? When you're asked the question, when someone says, tell me about yourself, how do you describe yourself? I hope that as Christians that at least part of our description in saying that is, is not so much focused on, well, I'm an accountant or I'm, I'm a real estate agent or I'm a banker or I'm a stay-at-home mom or whatever those answers might be, but rather, I am a child of God. I am one of God's people. I am one who has believed on Christ and I know that despite who I am and all that I have done in my sin, that Jesus paid the penalty for my sin and now I stand upon his righteousness alone. Do we find that as our identity? Or is it everything else that's going on? These things, they're not bad things. It's okay. We, wa- we want to be successful in our careers. We want to have happy, healthy, strong families. We want to be good moms and dads and children. But what is our ultimate identity? Is it in Christ? And friends, if you are not in Christ this afternoon, our prayer for you is that truly the Lord, by His Spirit, would awaken you to this new life. That you would find that all the things you seek your identity in in this world, all the garments you seek to wear, all the gold that you seek to spend, that none of it will satisfy your soul in the ways that it promises. It's all ultimately a lie of the world that any of this will give to you what it says it will provide. Only in Christ will you find that what you are longing for, truly longing for, is found in Him alone by faith. Only in Christ will you find that all that you have strove after, all that you've sought to achieve, in the end, when you accomplish it, you're only going to want more Because that, what you accomplished, didn't satisfy what you thought it would. Only in Christ can we come to Him and be truly honest about who we are and what we are. Only before Christ can we come and say, I am broken, I am lost, I am desperate, and I have a great need that I don't know how to fulfill. And only in Christ will He say, 
I will clothe you in my garment. I will give you my gold. And I will help you to see because now you are blind. And friend, this is for you by faith as you look to Christ alone who died to save sinners like you. Now, unfortunately, Jesus says the second way that you get out of this lukewarmness is through suffering. If you look carefully, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke, I chasten, I discipline. Over and over again, Jesus says, if you want to get out of lukewarmness into a real love-transformed life, you're probably going to have to work through some very difficult times with me at your side. One of my favorite quotes is from John Bunyan. He wrote, It is said that in some countries trees will grow, but will bear no fruit because there is no winter there. You see, if we're going to bear fruit, we need trials. We need adversity. We need struggling. We need suffering. And the Lord uses our suffering to grow us and to keep us from being apathetic, from being lukewarm. Now, one of the most amazing things about this whole passage is is that though in the beginning, Jesus says to them, you nauseate me, you make me want to spit you out. When you get down a little further, he says, and those I love, I rebuke. Therefore, do this and do that. What is he saying? He says, I look at your lives right now. I look at this church right now and I see nothing good, but that does not change my loving purposes for you. I still love you. Yes, you make me want to vomit, but I am completely committed to you. That's grace. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone opens to me, I will come in and I will eat with him and him with me. Now, of course you know, people always try to use this text all the time to say, Bring Jesus' salvation into your life. He's standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking. Listen, that's not how Jesus works. He's a door kicker, not a door knocker, right? He will kick the door down and bust in whether you want him to or not. He's an airborne ranger. (laughs) Jesus isn't saying that at all. What, What he's saying is that this is, this is for the whole church. It's Jesus asking the church, am I even welcome in your midst? And what we know is that Jesus meets with us, meets with us when we meet together. So, so long as we're meeting together in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus is at the door of the church and he's knocking and he's asking, am I even welcome here? Is anyone there? Imagine if every Sunday morning we come here, we gather together and we shut and we lock the doors and we carry on with our singing and our praying and our preaching. And meanwhile, there are these big booming knocks from outside and it's Jesus saying, is anyone there? Can I come in? But here's how he ends it. This marvelous statement. I will grant you to sit on my throne. If you let me, let me into the church, I'll let you sit on my throne. Think about what we say in the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
And so what is Jesus saying? Along with him, you and I, brothers and sisters, will be invited to rule the world. Every single thing he did, he did for his church. And he achieved it all for us that we might reign and rule with him forever and ever. Do you know why you can get a white robe? Because he was stripped naked on the cross. Do you know why you can have spiritual wealth? Because he was absolutely impoverished. He was stripped so that you could be clothed. He was impoverished so that you could be rich. He was blinded so that you could see. He was zealous for you, brothers and sisters. How can you come to grips with someone who gave himself utterly for you without giving yourself utterly for him? To only go halfway, to only go a quarter of the way, to only go two-thirds of the way, to not give him your all is not just an offense to the moral sensibility. It is a crucifixion of the intelligence. It's as stupid as it is wicked. Give yourself wholly to Christ. That's the only reasonable thing to do for someone who gave himself wholly for you. Let's not be lukewarm, brothers and sisters. May it be said of us that we are either hot or cold, that we not be spit out. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Emmanuel Baptist Church. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for this warning from the scriptures. Lord, as we hear it in many ways, we see this warning as something to make us to question our own hearts. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful, Lord, that you urge us to examine ourselves. And our great desire, Lord, as your people, is that we either be hot or that we be cold that we have words of health and life, that we have a spiritual life that provides the water of life, but that we not be lukewarm, that we not be spit out. And so, Lord, we pray that you help us to be zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you help us to walk by faith. Lord, we pray that you help us to see our identity as a people robed in white with spiritual accounts full of imperishable gold and with eyes to see that we did not get for ourselves or from ourselves or by ourselves, but all by your grace for your people. And we pray, Lord, that we would delight in this great reality. And so now as we turn to observe the Lord's Supper, we pray, O oh God, that you would bless these elements and that you would use them in our lives to encourage us to greater zeal and faithfulness for your glory. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church, and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.